Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative, and lifestyle medicine, review the medical literature, and we review case studies. Today's show topic is how to create a diet that enhances brain function and the role of a ketogenic diet in Alzheimer's disease. Our guest today is Andrea Glasser, RD. She's a registered dietitian. She works at Resilient Health in Austin, Texas. It's a functional and integrative medicine practice. Uh, she's a colleague of Dr. Sharon Hausman-Cohen, who I've interviewed. And so welcome, Andrea. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hi, Kirk. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So tell me about your educational background and why you want to be a dietitian and how did that work? Yeah, of course. Uh, nutrition's always been a huge passion of mine um, and my parents too, so they raised me that way. I went to the University of Texas at Austin and um, got into the licensing program there and um, got my license in um, nutrition and have been practicing ever since. Did you go do the hospital route or did you go right into clinical practice or private practice or how did that work? After my licensing program, I just approached Dr. Hausman-Cohen. I've been familiar with her work and we just came up with a little um, hybrid type job opportunity and I started working for her in private practice right away. So you went straight from traditional registered dietitian training into a functional medicine practice. Now, was that somewhat different? Why did you choose that route? Yeah, it's it's very different. Um, so, you know, the licensing program was a year of different rotations in very traditional dietetic tr- um, settings. And I always knew I sort of wanted to go into this more um, functional route um, because I was familiar with Dr. Hausman Cohen's work prior to finishing my degree. I was sort of um, aware that I wanted to go into this through my internship, and so that's why I approached her so quickly. And one, what specific area intrigued you? I think just the idea of using food as medicine and, you know, pre- preventative medicine with good nutrition is something that's always sort of sparked my interest and something that I think is extremely important and often um, looked over in just traditional medicine practices. And not not any, at any, um, you know, disrespect to any doctors. It's just that most doctors really don't have time to address all of the different issues and the small spots that they're given. And so I really like the idea of having a dietitian on staff um, in a medical facility to, to compensate for that lack of nutrition support. So when did you become interested in the role of diet in cognitive health? How did that transpire? That that transpired because my boss, Dr. Husband Cohen, um, who you've you've interviewed as you mentioned, she is well connected with Dr. Bredesen in California, and they've been um, you know working together on this cognitive protocol. And so she pulled me in on this, and she started training me and having me talk to different dietitians that are um, implementing this. And so Dr. Husband Cohen was you know a big part of this, and she's just she's helping me along the way. She's she's amazing. Let's say. Someone sees Dr. Hausman Cohen and, and she says, okay, we need a, a diet consult. And they have early Alzheimer's disease or they have cognitive decline. What are some of mm-hmm. the things that you need to start working? Is it just the dietary history? Is there some biochemical analysis? Is there some genetics? What is it that you need to start working with the patient? So what what I prefer to have is their cholesterol levels because we are implementing a high-fat diet. And I want to know, you know, how how at risk is their heart in terms of how much fat we're going to be giving them in the different types. So cholesterol levels is huge. Also, their APOE4, if they have the APOE4 gene or not, um, is a really big indicator because if you do have a copy of the APOE4 gene, you're at 
much higher risk for Alzheimer's as well as heart disease, and you store saturated fat um, as cholesterol more readily. So that's a big part that I would like to know. Um, and then dietary history is huge because I want to help patients transition their diet um, and try not to make it a huge change, just small steps to make it somewhat similar. But those are the big ones. So let's say someone gets referred to you. Do you take a dietary history right away or do they fill out some form? How does that start? They don't fill out any form. They just make an appointment with me. And, you know, one of the first things that we do is I go over what they eat on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't have to be exact because I'm pretty much going to change a lot of it. But just, just for them to have an idea in their head, which most people already do, then that's really all. So what are the major differences if are you doing on the cognitive uh, enhancement diet, so to speak, mm-hmm. versus a regular mm-hmm. diet? If you had someone with no cognitive decline and they just had hyper, mm-hmm. hyperlipidemia, what is the difference between how you'd approach that patient and the one with cognitive decline? So that's a good question. And my approach really varies based on, number one, where the patient is in terms of how much they want to change. And number two, the patient's genetics. Again, so if they do know their genetics, if they are an ApoE4, I will tailor, even even if we weren't doing any type of cognitive improvement or anything, it's still helpful for, for me to know that because we'll, I'll do a much lower carb, higher fat diet with them, of course, healthy fats, versus when if they aren't an ApoE4, I won't focus as much as on getting rid of all the grains and the carbs. So just someone, uh, just someone with an ApoE3-3 who has high cholesterol, I'll talk to them about, you know, saturated fat versus unsaturated fat and how we want you to not get your fat from animals, things like um, butter, cream, pork, bacon, all of that. That's going to be bad for your heart and your heart health and encourage them to get their fats from plant sources like nuts, seeds, olives, guacamole, avocado, etc. So if they're an ApoE4, what difference do you do then? So if they're ApoE4, I just try to really emphasize um, that we want to keep their blood sugar levels as low as possible, as this has been shown to be the most beneficial for ApoE4s. So we'll try to emphasize, um, you know, instead of having oatmeal in the morning, um, we want we want to try to get you off grains if we can. Can we try to do chia seed pudding in the morning with berries and nuts or, you know, some type of fruit with peanut butter? Fruit, we let them do fruit and all that, but we just try to really get them off of grains and bread and things like that. Tell me how you introduce, start getting them on the ketogenic diet, because there's a, there's a million versions of a ketogenic diet. There can be a high meat, cheese, all the fat, you can right. do a ketogenic diet. There can be, mm-hmm. if you, I mean, I guess you could do it as a vegetarian if you wanted to get enough oils in there. It's hard. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's, so, a, that's a hard one, and that's something we're struggling with. Some of our patients are vegetarians. But yeah, they're exactly like what you said. There are tons of different ketogenic diets. And what we really like to focus on here at Resilient Health is helping our patients get into a mild ketogenic diet that is plant-based about 80% of the time. So we try really hard because I know everyone thinks ketogenic diet, that's a cheeseburger with no bun. There it is, real simple. But actually nothing on a cheeseburger, not the bread, not the meat, not the cheese would be something that we would recommend. And that's a really hard part initially. But um, we've gone through this, this protocol with a lot of patients, about 40 couples, you know, usually they'll Usually our patients will have a spouse um, to help them because it is a really big challenging. But we have about 40, I've had about 40 couples go through this program and I've seen all of them just get through the hump of this being difficult and not what I'm used to and, and they're fine after about a month. It's just, it's just 
getting them through that transition where they don't feel confident in what they're doing is a big part of it. So we're talking to Andrea Glasser. She's a registered dietitian working at Resilient Health in Austin, Texas with Dr. Sharon Hausman-Cohen. And we're talking about how do you transition someone into a ketogenic diet? We're going to call it a healthful ketogenic diet. So obviously you said a keyword. When you're dealing with people with cognitive decline, you either have to have the spouse or you have to have Mm -hmm. the support team that's going to help do this because obviously you can't give all the information to the person who's struggling with their cognitive decline. So do you find that a challenge? Do you always invite family members or whatever, whoever's going to do the support to the visit? Yes, the the support person is crucial to, to this protocol, and we have not taken a patient who has serious um, cognitive issues without a spouse or a, a child to help them because it just cannot be done by themselves. We do have one patient um, who did this on her own, but she was really early on, and um, so she was able to process the information and implement from there. But yes, it is extremely challenging to do because you need cognitive functioning to make these changes, and that's the problem. So, you know, it it's challenging, but I find that, honestly, I work more with the spouse than I do with the patient. Um, of course, um, the spouse or the support person always comes with the patient to our meetings. Dr. Hausman-Cohen and I also host a tasting event for usually about every five new patients we get where I'll cook a bunch of food that we recommend, and the patient, their support system will come, and they'll meet five other patients and support systems, and they all sort of make this little support group. Everyone shares emails, and we send recipes through each other. So, yes, the support people and the support group is probably the most important part of of making this a successful change. Great idea. So, again, let's let's start then. You've done your diet history, and someone is, mm-hmm. let's say, an APOE4, and they're, you want to get them on a ketogenic diet. So how mm-hmm. do you start getting them there? Are you testing right away for beta-hydroxybutyrated ketones? Are you, what are you doing? Okay, so yeah, no, we don't start the testing first. The first thing I like to do is really try to get their heads in the right place um, and just keep emphasizing that we want you to get your diet low in carbs, high in healthy fat, which will make the ketones produce in your body, and this will help brain healing. I, I try to say that sentence over and over again because I want people to understand why they're doing this. Because sometimes in the midst of all of it, it seems crazy. But I try to just drive that point home, and then I take really small, slow steps. Um, so what I'll do is, you know, I've already gotten their diet history, so then I'll talk about, okay, let's look at about 12 steps it's going to take for you to fully change everything I want you to change. Here, here it is in 12 steps. Let's, let's look at it step by step and go as slowly as we need to. And not until the last few steps, Kirk, is when I even try to suggest that they start testing their ketone strips. Because, number one, it can be really discouraging for our patients to, to check their ketone strips and not, not see any. Um, and number two is that it's, it's a waste of their money because the testing can be expensive if they're not really fully there. So once they feel confident with the diet, they've achieved most of the steps I've been counseling them to, probably usually about a month into the diet, mm, three weeks, they'll start, they'll start testing. Um, and do you want me to go into well, what, what that I, entails? Well, actually, I'd like to, since you created a nice 12-step program, if you want to just highlight the basic steps, I would like sure. if you can do that. That would be... sure. Absolutely. So step yes, number one, step number one, step number one. <laughs> so step number one is going to be just getting 
getting rid of all of the grains and the breads and the cookies in the house. So it's just clearing out the house so that it's not in the house. All right, so let me interrupt um, a so second. That's gonna, so mm-hmm. Let me interrupt a second. So you're, 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 making, you're lumping two types of carbohydrates together. You're lumping garbage carbohydrates, which everybody agrees on getting rid of, and then you're also yep. lumping good carbohydrates, with, which not mm-hmm. everybody agrees on. So, right. Correct. Right. So you're getting rid of all mm-hmm. grains in in the carbohydrate. When you're yeah. Talking. Okay. And and that and sometimes the spouse wants to keep them for themselves, um, and then you know they'll work that out between them. But usually the spouse is on board to just do whatever they need to do. Um. So yeah, most any carbohydrate that's shelf stable, pretty much is just we ask them to just get rid of it, give it to their neighbors, just get it out of the house. Do it for their brain, we always say. Okay, but you're also getting rid of good carbohydrates, which would be, uh, let's say, steel-cut oats or... Yep. All right, so the, the grain yep. part. If, okay, I got it. Yep. So I'm just trying to delineate that. And, sure, and let me just clarify, Kirk, that this is the diet protocol that I would do for someone who is really struggling cognitively and they're trying to reverse that cognitive deficit. Um, this isn't necessarily like a prevention or staying still because, you know, for some people we're doing a lot less of an intense diet and for them oatmeal sometimes is totally fine. But I'm these steps are for someone who is struggling significantly cognitively and we're trying to really reverse that no, or at least stabilize no, it, I got not, it, not decline. I, I totally okay. understand. So we get rid of the grains. Okay. Now what's, mm-hmm. is, is that step two or we have? Step one is just getting rid of the grains in the house. That's got all you got to do is just get rid of everything in the house. Number two is just focusing on transitioning breakfast. Um, so this entails talking about what they eat for breakfast now, trying to find a way to um, make it as similar as possible, but, you know, still following within the different guidelines. Okay, so give me a sample breakfast. So a sample breakfast would be something, like I mentioned earlier, chia seed pudding um, with berries and nuts is a really popular one among our patients because people generally like to eat um, oatmeal for breakfast, and that's, you know, comparable. Another thing, uh, another idea would be, you know, eggs scrambled with different types of vegetables and um, avocado with that. Also, a lot of our patients like almond bread. They'll they'll make big batches of almond bread on the weekend and eat that through the week. Almond bread with avocado and tomato. Sometimes some of my patients eat sardines with their almond bread in the morning. Um, I don't typically suggest that right off the, the bat. I don't want to scare anyone away um, with that sardine comment. But that is something that people tend to enjoy. Okay. Um, but yeah, those are just some some quick samples. So that's that's number two, um, mm-hmm. transiting breakfast. Now, what's number three step? Mm-hmm. That's going to be transitioning lunch. So same thing, but with lunchtime food. So I want to throw this in here. So you have fasted at least twelve hours for breakfast from the time you had your last meal. Are you following that part of the Bredesen protocol? Or? Yeah. I am following that, and that comes at about step five, I believe. Okay, all right. So you're not worried about that. Okay, yeah. so so you're transition, transitioning lunch, and what is, mm-hmm. is the same kind of food, or t- give me a sample lunch. Um, you know, lunch really varies. A lot of my patients like to just eat leftovers from dinner for lunch. So, really, anything from you know salmon with vegetables and a soup. You know, there's a lot of different stir fries that my patients like, and they'll do that over a cauliflower rice, zucchini. Zucchini noodles are really popular um, among our patients. They have a, we have a pesto sauce that they really like, and they'll do that. The pesto sauce on the zucchini noodles with some fish, and always, if they're still hungry, we say, you know, just snack on nuts, berries, things like that, but, you know, don't reach for the bread, um, don't reach for the dessert. 
well, the bread shouldn't be in the house, right? You, you know, and that is a rule, good, good point, but sometimes it doesn't always happen, unfortunately. Right. The, or, you know. the almond bread can be made in the house, but not the... Uh, the almond bread is made, and, you know, that is that is something, a complaint, is that the patients have to make it themselves instead of they can't just grab it at the store, and that is a challenge, but it just sort of comes with the territory of this sort of unique diet. Okay. All right, so we've got, and what are they drinking all this time? Did they have their cup of green tea or coffee in the morning, or what did you tell them to do? Yeah, yeah, yep. Tea and coffee is fine, just no um, sugar to sweeten it with. Most of our patients are just used to drinking it black by this point. They get used to it real quickly. So in this lunch, are we also, aside from you just mentioned salmon and a few things, are you encouraging lots of green leafy vegetables and non-starchy vegetables? Okay. yes. Green leafy vegetables throughout the whole day is preferable. And now, how about number four, step number four, transitioning dinner? Did I guess right? Yep. <laughs> yes, sir, you did. And, it, and, and that would be pretty much the same as lunch, you know, depending on where the patient is and all of that. But about the same types of meals. Okay, now, there's no snacking in between, or is there snacking in between? And, would it, and what would it be if there was snacks? Yeah, so Dr. Hasman Cohen... And I both try to um, encourage our patients to not snack in between meals to maximize the fasting time of the patients to maximize their ketone production as the ketones, again, are are where the brain healing is going to come in. But sometimes it just really depends where the patient is in in their readiness to change and how their lifestyle is compared to the lifestyle that we want. So if the patient is used to grazing all day, I don't want to have to change everything in their diet plus change when they're eating. Um, so it really depends on how willing that they are. But yeah, ideally in an ideal wor- world with my most compliant and motivated patient, I would say no more snacking, just eat three meals a day. And you know, if you're hungry, then add more fat to your meals. Okay. And so snacking, I mean, traditionally people don't snack on a piece of salmon and greens. So they, I mean, right. nuts, <laughs> nut, nuts might be a more yeah. normal that, snack. If you talk to my patients, they'll say that they eat more nuts than they ever thought possible, and that's just because nuts are really such an easy go-to for a lot of things. But mixed nuts, there's a lot of different flavored nuts that my patients like, and then almond bread is a good snack, like almond bread with peanut butter, and you know, some have some sugar-free jelly that they like. You know, the sugar-free concept is is you know, fake sugar is definitely debatable. But for some of my patients, you know, if they're if they're going to do that, a regular sugar, I'd rather them do that for right now. So now let's go to rule number five, or step five. Um, okay, me. so yeah, so step five is going to be um, fasting for 12 hours every day. So that's, you know, what you brought up earlier, and that's just, we don't necessarily specify that we want you to stop eating three hours before bed. I mean, that would definitely be ideal, but we always say, you know what, whatever the thing you eat last in the day, let's say you have, you know, your dinner late and you finish eating at 8, we just don't want you eating until 8 a.m. the next day. Give it 12 hours. We want to maximize those ketones, and we want to maximize the brain healing in that 12 hours. All right. So, and right now, if we followed your steps, tell me, are we in week one or week two? And then also, we obviously haven't checked our ketones yet, right? We're not in that part of the nope. program? Okay. And is, is this all not done? Yet. Is this all done in the first week or two, This these transitions? No, they're not. And again, this depends on how much the patient has already changed and how much they want to change and how motivated they are. And also it depends on if I'm working with them over the phone, um, as I've been working with your patients in California, you know, we, we, we can talk on the phone every, you know, every week, but generally what they've been preferring to do is just sort of talk about all of it on the first phone call and then implement on their own timeline. Like the first week they'll do 
the first two goals. The second week they'll do this, the next two goals, et cetera. And then they'll call me to make an appointment when they want to discuss further. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, perfect. So uh, let's okay. go to step number six. Okay, so that's going to be exactly what we just talked about, which is going to be to really try to reduce snacking um, in between meals. All right, so reduce snacking. And this you- just makes it a formal rule. <laughs> okay, now, do you ever cut it to two meals a day? I mean, some people do that, where they just do two meals we, in an eight-hour period or something like that, and a little snack. Yeah, something. a lot of my patients do that. I don't push them to do that just because it's already such a transition to do the diet as it is. But if they want to go the extra mile and want to maximize their time in ketosis, I absolutely um, encourage their their motivation okay. and say, yes, that would be fine to do. All right, number seven step. Okay, and Kirk, I have to tell you, when I said 12 steps earlier, I was just estimating. <laughs> I think it's about 10. That's so right. So don't okay. wait until you get to 12. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I just keep going. That's good. Thank you. Just keep, I, thought it was, okay, so, I thought it was like the 12. Mm-hmm. You were doing a, um, a, a, good, oh. <laughs> a, good, a good spoof on a way to learn on the 12-step program. But anyway, all right, step number oh, seven. Oh, that's funny. Step number seven. Um, okay, so that's that's going to be minimizing saturated fat as much as possible. And this is really a step to take in order to keep the hearts healthy. So we talked mainly for the first about six steps about um, the brain and, you know, doing all this for the brain. But we just don't want to – we don't want patients to forget that their heart is really important. And, um, you know, if you do this diet incorrectly, it can really it can really do some harm to your heart. So um, this is when I go over with them all the different types of fat, which fat we want them to be eating, which fat not to. And, of course, we sort of talk about this throughout, but this is when I make it a rule, like – you know what, I know you've been eating cheese and I know that's helping, you know, that's probably helping your blood sugar stay low, but we do not want you to go crazy on the cheese because your heart will suffer and we do not want to pick brain over heart or heart over brain for that matter. It's about finding a happy medium. So when you say minimize saturated fat, you're really talking about generally animal products, correct? And then, so are you saying three ounces Mm -hmm. of salmon or three or four ounces of salmon or whatever it is that you're saying? What are you saying? Yes. First, yes, like four to six ounces for salmon, um, but for other meats, definitely three. But, yeah, in terms of meat and, you know, poultry and fish and all of that, the name of the game, well, actually fish doesn't count, but the name of the game with meat and chicken is to get, if you are going to choose animal proteins, which I understand it's a really hard diet to do without it, if you are going to do animal proteins, get the leanest cut you can. And this really confuses patients because they're saying, but Andrea, you're telling me to eat so much fat. And that's where it gets really confusing. But I I just say this over and over. I want you to get as much fat as you can from a plant and from your other types of foods, like from your chicken, I need that to be as lean as possible. Um, So the fat should come from a plant, and the protein, if you choose for it to come from an animal, should be very lean. All right. So then your your rule for fish is a little bit different. You're encouraging more fish because of the omega-3s, theoretically? Yeah, because fish doesn't have um, as much saturated fat as, you know, chicken and and beef. And yes, it is a good source of omega-3s. We don't want them to go crazy on the fish because of the mercury content. Of course, mercury is not good for cognition, but choosing the bigger types of fish and eating them we, we encourage about four to five servings of fish a week at most um you know if that's doable and then then the rest of the the meat would be fit, um meat or poultry correct the, the other couple of days yeah you, so, poultry yeah so you don't have any animal free days so to speak true in an ideal diet i would absolutely say you know you can do a vegetarian the rest just do tofu um use your carbohydrates and we can talk about how we 
a lot carbohydrates, but use that for beans and lentils and things that will have protein. But it doesn't always work that easily. So, yeah, animal protein does come up. It's, it happens to be an important part of this diet just in terms of being realistic. But we really encourage them to try to eat tofu a lot of days um, if they tolerate soy all right. So tofu is not just, you know, protein. Obviously, it's got carbohydrate in it. Does that not uh, screw up the uh, ketogenesis? No, it doesn't. To- soy really doesn't have that many carbs. It, it's sort of like nuts, like how, you know, nuts have carbs also, but there's so much fiber and fat and protein that it, it weighs down the carbohydrates in the absorption process. So it, it should not throw our patients out of ketosis any more than, you know, their big leafy green salad with carrots. Really? Um, it's that. Yeah. And honestly, I haven't seen any of my patients have a problem with nut or soy consumption in terms of keeping their ketone levels where they are just because the carbohydrates are minimal compared to the other ingredients that are weighing it down. Right. So you're separate, even though tofu comes from a bean, you're separating that from, let's say, black beans, red beans, garbanzo beans, because those would have too much carbohydrate in your your view of this? They don't have, well, they have a significant amount of carbohydrates in that it would not be, in that it would not be a free food. It would not be something that you could eat an unlimited amount. Okay. All right. So where do you put in lentils and beans? Then anywhere, so, anywhere here? Yeah, lentils and beans are in the category of carbohydrates we want our patients to be eating in the allotted amount. So we absolutely want our patients to, be, to eat beans and fruit and berries, um, certain fruit like berries, but we do not encourage them to be consumed as much as they want. It needs to be in measured quantities. Right, and so you have charts for that or a handout for that because that would be yes. confusing. Yep. Okay, so... It, yeah, that is confusing, but I, I talk them... A big part of what we do is talking about carb counting and um, ways to easily count carbs without necessarily weighing or measuring, sort of eyeballing and getting estimates. And, and yeah, I've got, I've got all of that as part of my protocol. Okay, so that would be very important. So there is a place for measured good carbs such as lentils and yeah. beans okay and then tofu lentils beans sweet potatoes mm-hmm. sorry okay that's good so sweet potatoes are superfood i'm with you here and tofu's in a little bit different category than those yes tofu and soybeans are in the eat freely category they can eat as much of that as they want same with nuts um even cashews which have a little bit more carbs than the other nuts we do not see that as an issue for okay. our patients so, keeping their ketones high and their blood sugar low. Right. So me being a vegetarian, if I, if I, <laughs> some people would debate whether I have cognitive decline or not, but <laughs> um, <laughs> some of my patients, but if I chose to do stir fry with a ton of vegetables and soy, organic soy, uh-huh. then theoretically I should be able to get into ketosis and do this? Yes, absolutely. Many of my patients do, but um, what you'd be missing from that, meal and you probably just didn't mention it but you need fat in your diet to get right. into okay so let's so say you stir fried okay. it in extra virgin olive oil just for the mm-hmm. heck of it or whatever so okay i sure. understand yeah I'm just, all right i was just curious i was just curious okay good yes you will right. absolutely get into ketosis right. i mean you you will get into the level of ketosis that we're looking for you you won't get into the highest amount of ketosis possible but um that's not what our goal is all right so i think we have <laughs> i sidetracked you there but i think that was step seven so if you're counting, if you're counting right, we have three more. <laughs> so yes, what's the yes, next step? That is exactly right. What's the next step? So th- the next one is going to be choosing wisely when going out to eat, and this is a big um, 
complaint from our patients is that it's so hard to maintain their social life as they did previously as restaurants and social events come up frequently and it's really hard to maintain this diet. Um, so what we will then do is go through all of the restaurants they usually go to, different social events, um, and we really try to hash through menus and come up with different meal ideas to bring to social events so that they have food um, and to truly try to make the process as painless as pro- as possible for when they are in the social situation. So you obviously give people handouts, correct? Yes, of course. Now, yes, absolutely. Now, so what do you do with like a patient of mine across the country? Do you send them a um, PDF yes. or something? Yes. Before, before our phone conversation, I email them everything and ask for them to have it um, up on their computer next or print it out so that when I call them, they have it all in front of them and I go through um, the protocol page by page. So let's go to number nine step. What we got? So this is going to be starting to measure ketones with urine. Um, and this one sometimes we can bypass because the urine test strips for ketones, I don't know the, what you've heard from your patient's feedback with the urine strips, but for my patients here, um, they are not having great success in terms of reliability right. um, so and I, the accuracy. Well, I've talked to Dr. Bredesen. He's not a big fan of them. I mean, he, he doesn't feel they yeah, work for a while. Yeah, they aren't. The so. reason we, we've put that in there as an optional step is that some patients are hesitant to start with blood right away. Also, the blood strips are really expensive, and it makes them feel a little better sometimes just to try with urine just to sort of see what happens. And sometimes it, it's pretty accurate, but sometimes it's not. So we just sort of take whatever the reading is with a grain of salt um, and prepare them for the All blood right. test. So the timing is of, of unique importance. Do you do it in the morning fasting after exercise? That's exactly what we recommend, Kirk. We say, you know, we want you to test your ketones the time when you would have the maximum amount of ketones present in your blood or urine, and that's going to be the longest amount of fasting you can have, which would be your nighttime fasting, um, and then the exercise will will kick up your ketones even more. So if the patient is, you know, exercising, com- you know, compliant with exercise, it would be wake up in the morning fasting, exercise, check ketones right after that before eating anything. So let's say they're not where you want it. Do you take the MC- MCT oil then, or what... what- where does that fit in? Yeah, it definitely varies, but usually they'll call me and they'll say, you know, I checked my ketones this morning and yesterday morning and it's below the level that we want them. And so then I'll then go through what they've been eating now and different choices they've been making. And generally we can sort of figure it out what the problem is just on the phone. Usually it's just not getting enough fat in general, not even enough coconut oil. But if they are eating the proper amount of fat and the proper amount of carbohydrates and they're still not getting into ketosis, what I really try to do is kick down their carbohydrates more because we start with somewhat large amount of carbohydrates compared to other ketone diets. And we, we do that mainly because of all the carbohydrates that our patients are getting from greens and carrots and things like that. But from there, I'll, we'll kick it down like by 15 grams. And then if they're still not getting into it, into ketosis, then yeah, MCT oil is a good option to get into ketosis, but most of my patients haven't needed it. All right, you do the beta-hydroxybutyrate in the in the urine, and you say you're not mm-hmm. in ketosis, and so, and you're just going to cut down on carbs. You would then go to what I would call the good carbs, is the lentils and the, the sweet potato right. and, the, and the beans, and right. cut, cut those down first, yeah, right? And then, unfortunately, and that's, and and that's the, a hard process. Would, yeah. would, the, would the last ones be the berries, or would you do all of them at the same time? Mm, I... Generally, when this happens, I don't have to make a really hard decision like that. <laughs> they, they still, you know, I don't want to say between black beans and berries. That's such a hard decision. Generally, what will happen is the patient will be eating half an apple after dinner, and we just say, "Look, cut the apple," or 
they eat those little baby clementines, but they eat, they eat them like throughout the day. So no more clementines. And usually it just it happens without having to make such a devastatingly challenging decision. <laughs> well, that sounds like the fruit's the simplest one. I mean, what you just said. Yeah, yeah. The apple is. I find that my patients with the apple, they that really usually kills their ketone levels. I what is from my experience. So the good oils, I want to go over those. So when they're making their salad or whatever, you've talked about avocado. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm assuming extra virgin olive oil as well. Are yes. those the two main mm-hmm. oils that you use just when you're cooking with food? Or what else would you use? And aside from the um, MCT oil, I get that too. Yeah, so, you know, extra virgin olive oil. Um, I guess, you know, we do a lot of grapeseed oil, or we have our patients do that because it's pretty bland, and some of our patients need to get a lot more oil, and so they'll put just a ton of grapeseed oil because it doesn't, you know, they can't taste it too much. Um, and then, you know, they're in smoothies, a lot of my patients like flaxseed oil, walnut oil, things like that. Would you ever use, like in a smoothie, whole flaxseed and just have it ground up in there? Or you just want more pure oil? Oh, definitely flaxseed. No, definitely. I would actually probably rather them grind it outside of the smoothie unless they have a Vitamix um, or something like a Blendtec. Um, but I would say flaxseed and flax oil because the flaxseed is great for them to get that fiber in, but it's usually doesn't give them quite the boost of fat that they need to get into ketosis. So now that we've gone through the 12-step program and 10 steps, I'm tongue-in-cheeking it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how long did this take in the normal patient, the time progression? Are we three months into it? Are we? And I know mm. some, somebody could do you know all in a, two weeks if they wanted. but Right. Uh, I would say a month is pretty much the average. Okay, and how many times have you talked to the patient in that month? So if I send someone to you, I, I you know I, I know your visit, what it costs, and I said, you know, ballpark, you know, four visits, you're going to be into it, kind of, sort of. What what would you say? Right. Well, for for your patients in California, I would probably talk to them twice, but that's only because that's what I would you know, suggest, I, I would give them options, but usually they don't, they know what they need to do, the spouse especially, and they say, you know, we've got it, we'll time it, um, but we just want to talk to you every two weeks or every month to make sure we're on the right track. But for, for my patients in Austin, that's different. They come in like, you know, I guess twice in that first month, and then in between I'll usually give them a call, so I'll probably talk to them four times in that month. Can you talk about where, so once they go past the stage of using the ketone strips and they don't work well or you give up with that, where do you tell them to get the um, the glucometer that tests also for beta-hydroxybutyrate? And again, what is the range that you're shooting for in beta-hydroxybutyrate to assess for ketosis? For Yeah, for the blood ketones, um, we just have um, a, a ketone monitor here. Um, it's by Abbott, and we use it on our patients, and we really like it. So when they ask, you know, which one to get, we just give them that brand, and I can give it to you right now if you want. But um, in terms of um, the in terms of the um, the ideal range for the ketones, we we want them, and what Dr. Bredesen has been having his patients get into is 0.5 to 2 millimoles per liter. So that's goal. And you know, some of our patients that are up up to the one point five to two area and still aren't getting as much improvement, then we can, you know, look at maybe going up to the 2.5 range, but generally we like them to be at 0.5 to two. Okay. And that's... And that... 
Mm-hmm. That, I was just going to say that ketone monitor is the it's Precision Extra, um, and it's by Abbott. And yeah, and then they, we just tell them to get the the ketone strips with and, that. And, and and one of the last questions is: Are they checking their blood sugars, or do you care when you're doing this process? Usually, they want to check their blood sugars. I found so. I would say I would love to know what their blood sugar ranges are. We like them to be really low, but I don't. I don't make it mandatory. Where do you have them order the um, the strips for the beta hydroxybutyrate? Because those can be pricey, we, correct? Yeah, they're really expensive, and we we just have them order them online, Amazon typically. But um, something that we found is that it is expensive at first, but once patients get the hang of it, um, fall into a routine get the same ketone numbers over and over again consistently, they don't need to check all the time. They check, my, my patients that are in maintenance mode check like once a week, maybe even less than that. So it doesn't, it's not that expensive in the long run. It's just the first, you know, a month or so you're going to be using a lot of them. And does Dr. Hausman Cohen like recheck for their cardiovascular risk factors after they've been on your, the program? Um, is it just, yes. a, is it a lipid profile? Is it CRP? We yes. do a cleave and a heart panel. We do all kinds yes. of stuff. So how often yes. does she do that? Every three months. Okay. And he, she does hemoglobin A1C also and insulin and all that. Obviously fasting. Yes. All right. Okay. I think, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say? You've done a great job. I kept you an extra 10 minutes. I'm uh, sorry. It's a good thing we didn't have the 12-step. No, that's okay. The 12-step program otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think we, we got a great summary. I, just, I guess I just want to say that um, I really appreciate you having me. I like um, t- being able to spread the word about this and... hoping that people can really get better or at least not decline is really a a big part of this. And just for the the audience, you can call her at the clinic and schedule an appointment with her. And and what happens if somebody's listening to this out of the blue and they're not a patient of mine or anybody else and they just want to counsel? Can can they call and set up an appointment or do they have to be referred by a health professional? (sighs) That is a really great question. I'm actually not sure that hasn't happened yet. Um, But um, that's something I can look into. I imagine that at very least I would want them to call us and let them know that they're interested. And, and if they do need a doctor referral, we would just ask them on the phone to contact your doctor and have them send us a referral. Right. So they can so they can call the front desk number just to at least chat with you for a minute to find out what to do next? I mean, Yes, it's, it's... exactly. Because it does vary by state um, in terms of dietitian rules and licensing rules. I mean, I've only been working with patients in Texas and then also in California with your patients um, because in California, you don't need, I don't need to be a licensed dietitian in California in order to practice diet, um, dietetics and nutrition with residents in California, but other states have different rules, so that's not something I can say without researching, unfortunately. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time on a Friday. You're probably ready to go on your, your long weekend, and I know it's two, it's two <laughs> hours course. later. It's two hours later there. So thank you very yes, much, sir. Andrea. Thank you very much. Of course. You're so welcome, Kirk. I had a pleasure talking to you. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. And as usual, I will have summaries of the contact information underneath the podcast and actually a summary of the the, t- the 12 steps that are really 10 steps. And um, <laughs> I'll talk to you soon and you have a great day.